Well, if you've been here for the last several Sundays, you realize that we're in the middle of a expositional series, a verse-by-verse look at the first letter that Paul wrote to the church of the Thessalonians, called First Thessalonians. Subtitle, Living Today in Light of Tomorrow, because what is going to happen one day should make a huge difference in how we deal with today, and especially in times of suffering and trial, which is going to be the subject of what we're going to be considering in this particular portion of God's Word today. Something that certainly is relevant. It's not something we are glad comes, but it is part of life in this fallen world until we are at home with the Lord in the next. It will be something we will know and those that we love and those that we are trying to reach. Last week, um, I looked just at verse 13 in chapter 2 of Thessalonians. And I just want to read that again real quickly for right now in chapter 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Last week's title of the last week's message was God's word at work. And you know, I could have subtitled, uh, I could have titled this week's message in a moment that I'm going to reveal uh, in verses 14 through 16. I could have uh, done the title of God's Word at Work 2, part 2. You know, I could have done that because it would be true. It certainly follows. This is again the fruit of the working out of God's Word, but it's in a particular area, and that has to do with our suffering and with persecution. By the way, I changed the title in your text. It says persecution, uh, God's word and persecution. But And you'll see on the screen as I went a little broader than that to suffering. So God's word and suffering is going to be what we're going to look at today. But I just want to remind you of one important element last week. If you were not here, and if you were here, if you kind of got glazed over and missed it somehow, what Paul was saying, what he was trying to get across is the Thessalonians, they welcomed this letter from Paul that's now part of what we call the Bible. It's part of the inscripturated word. They welcomed it as what it really was, the word of God. They did it both intellectually and internally. They internalized it. They heard it with the ear and accepted it, but they also received it with welcome and embrace they recognized its word that was God's authority to them. But they also recognized that it was sufficient. It was not just the word of God and had authority, but it was sufficient so they would know how to live practically and really in the real world. They knew they could trust not only its origin last week, but they could also trust its wisdom for day-to-day living. Now, see, that's probably usually where the church today has a real rub, isn't it? Oh, we still will, in evangelical Bible-believing circles, we'll assent to the authority and to the truth of God's Word, but when it comes to taking His assessment of a situation or something going on in our culture, we tend to want to go with what we've been culturally taught. The problem with the church today, folks, in large measure, in many places, is it's culturally informed. That's good to be culturally aware, 
But unfortunately, its values and its passions and its convictions are informed more by the culture than they are by the word of God. And that leads to a very dangerous place. When we let what the culture says define how we feel about certain things rather than what God says. And, but if we do that, we're not, doing, we're not taking the word as really sufficient. We're saying somehow, well, that's outmoded, that's outdated. No, the Thessalonians took it as the word of the living God for what it really was. And we need to do so also. And that word is at work. It was at work last week in the way that it was working in them as believers, growing them and maturing them in their faith. But today we're going to see it's at work in another way. Our scripture reading today begins at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning at verses 14 through 16. And these are some very, in some ways, disturbing verses. Very hard truth is being said here that's not easily swallowed and palatable. And it's very, can can be easily confusing. We're going to try to look at this and understand it more clearly today. Verse 14. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as also to fill up the measure of their sins, but God's wrath, has come upon them at last. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will remain forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it. Father, these are heavy words, hard words to hear and understand. But you have given us, Lord, your Holy Spirit, Lord, to show us and bring us into all truth and understand what you have revealed in your word written but now help us understand it and apply it to our hearts and may it yield in us not rebellion but submissiveness and meekness as we receive the engrafted word in that way father let it yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness and change us and we pray in jesus name amen suffering if we're honest is one of those things in the Christian life that we'd like to clep out of, right? You college students know what clepping out of something is. (laughs) We'd like to clep out. (laughs) We'd like to opt out, not have to take that course called suffering. Do you like suffering? Do you look forward to it? Do you just say, man, I wish I could have a little more suffering in my life today? No, I don't think so, and neither do I. 
You know, when I was a new Christian, when I became a Christian at 17, when someone finally, under, for the first time, understood why Jesus came. I knew, never doubted that he did, never doubted that he died. I just didn't know why. I didn't know what it had to do with me. But once I came to Christ and knew him as my Savior, one of the verses I fell in love with, besides 2 Corinthians um, uh, 5.17, about being a new creation and old things passing away. But one of the other ones that I fell in love with, at least in part, was Philippians 3.10. And I love that part where it says that I might know him. Man, I wanted to know Jesus better. I got in the word. I wanted to understand who he was and what he did and appreciate him and see him more clearly. I love that, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. Man, I want power in my life, don't you? Don't you want to have be energized by the power of God? But then there was this other uncomfortable portion of that verse, second half of it, where it says this. And may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Whoops. <laughs> I just kind of, you know, close the Bible right there and go think on that first half of that verse. That's, that's, in, that's encouraging. That's inspiring. It's uplifting. Not other. Not so much. You see? But that's part of the Christian life. And Paul is going to tell us, some things today that I think are going to be helpful as we struggle. And the truth is we do. When suffering comes, when it shows up, we often struggle with how to handle it ourselves or how to tell someone else to handle it, a brother or sister in Christ. Or what if it's not even a believer? What if it's an unbelieving friend? What do we say then? Is there any hope for them? God's word tells us a lot about suffering and you know what it does it doesn't tell us here do this step one two three and it'll be gone go and pray this prayer this way and say these magic words and it'll be out of your life no bible doesn't do that sometimes god does deliver from suffering in many ways miraculously and that's why we can pray for that but you know what it tells us what the way we need to see it and view it. The Bible gives you a framework for understanding your suffering, not for eradicating it. Do you understand the difference? Very important that we grasp that. So, Paul is trying to help the Thessalonians here. He knows they're suffering. Just like the churches in Judea were suffering persecution. And he, now it's come to them and they're having the same thing happen to them. And it's brutally tough to live the Christian life under persecution. And yet Paul is trying to give them some perspective in what he is saying today to them. And help them and us see suffering through the eyes of faith. Remember, we walk what? Not by sight, but by faith. That is the, that is the call of the Christian life. Now, our passage today describes, and, and it doesn't do a, a full, of course, complete treatment on these subjects. There's a lot more in other portions of the Bible that deal with more about the subject of suffering, both by believers and by unbelievers. But it does tell us here and gives us an example of two types of suffering that show up in the passage that I just read. And one type of suffering, though we don't think so naturally, is actually the evidence of approbation. Now, if you don't know what that word means, approbation means approval, acceptance, 
It means we're in good. And so what I'm saying there is actually Paul is telling us that suffering is not something that is a punishment from God to his people, but part of the Christian life, which brings about good things in them as they walk through that suffering in faith and in obedience, yielding submissively to God. Paul says there is that type of suffering. And, and verse 14 is what we see there. But then there's another kind of suffering. And it is an indication of condemnation. It is not good news. It is a very serious and sad indictment. And we're going to see both today in the text. Paul in the text today gives us a glimpse of both. So here's our two-point outline today. First of all, God's word informs our suffering as believers. God's word informs, helps us understand, get perspective on our suffering. And also, though, secondly, God's word explains others' suffering, particularly of the, those that do not believe those that do not know the Lord. And this is where the sad part comes in. First of all, God's word informs our suffering. The Thessalonians knew about the churches in Judea. Paul had told them and how they had suffered. He'd explained persecution to them. And now it was at their door. They were in the midst of it. And yet they were willingly suffering and still growing stronger spiritually through it. They knew what it meant to identify with the Judean churches. That they would also, if they did, if they started living and practicing and preaching and teaching like the Judean churches, they knew the same thing would happen to them. Automatic. They knew there was no way they were going to dodge that bullet. It was going to come. Look at verses, look at verse 14. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Judea. Of Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. The Thessalonians accepted the fact they took God's word at face value. They accepted it for what it was and is. As Chuck likes to say, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Right, Chuck? That's what it is, and they accepted that, and they said, look, if, if this is what we believe, then if that happened to other churches that believe that word, and they got persecuted, why should we expect to get an exemption? That's just part of the life. They understood that, and they were baby Christians. Many of us are not baby Christians, and we still don't figure out, oh, no, why did suffering come to my life? see, the word was at work in them. And in the foremost way it was at work was the way they viewed their sufferings. They were in solidarity. When you have solidarity, that's someone that's like, you know, you know what you have? Your body has solidarity really in a very um, one particular way. It's probably other ways you could illustrate it. But I uh, found that out 
one time washing dishes uh, when I was in seminary and nobody else was around and I uh, was washing dishes and had a good, nice uh, you know, pot there, a soapy pot, and had my hand on that iron skillet and the water and I reached over to the fridge to open the fridge door and get something out of the fridge and pow, knocked me across the room. You know what? My arm just didn't hurt. Everything, all parts of my body hurt. And that's what the, the, the Thessalonians knew. By the way, it wasn't grounded. Always make sure devices are grounded. Um, uh, so, but you see, when, when that happens, they understood. Look, if all these others suffered, why not us? Why do we expect to somehow get a different deal? You see, the, the Thessalonians amazingly understood such a mature thought. They understood the bigger pattern of God's purposes along with the prophets and Jesus and Paul and their fellow Judeans. They said if all of those suffered, if Jesus and Paul and the prophets and our fellow church brothers and sisters suffered, why would this be a strange thing? Remember Peter's language? Why, why are you acting like some, something really weird and, and out of place has come upon you with this fiery trial that you're under? You know, Jesus said that's coming. Didn't you, didn't you get the memo? Didn't you read? Didn't you hear? You see, this kind of suffering, though, listen, this kind of suffering for standing up for Jesus, for, for embracing and holding the word of God and its values, even in a culture that is collapsing and rotting around us, that brings persecution. It brings suffering. But this kind of suffering is what we call redemptive. It ultimately has a good purpose in the intention of God. It gives us a proper framework to interpret our suffering, not as God's displeasure, but as his intention to conform us to the image of his own beloved son. Romans 8, 28. That's why it's true. That's how it's true. I love this. I love this quote from Paul Tripp. Uh, I, he, he's on, uh, on the, uh, my uh, Twitter feed. And by the way, I don't Twitter, but I, I take a few select people that I listen to and let them pump information and, and scripture truth and truth into me and sometimes other things. But I listen to here, and this is one of his most recent tweets. He said, don't be so quick to conclude your pain is a sign of God's absence in your life. He uses painful things to soften, motivate, and mature us. And we may not like that, but he does, and he will. And it's part of his good purpose that he intends for you. Philippians 3.10, remember? <laughs> we just read it again. That I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings. And what's the end result? Becoming like him. In his death. I'm willing to submit myself as Paul, as, as uh, Hebrews says, to a faithful, like Jesus did, to a faithful creator. God, I'm yours. I submit to you and whatever you have for me. My hands and life is better off in your hands than in mine. That's what the Thessalonians were doing. Amazing, amazing maturity. By the way, <laughs> that being said, that kind of suffering is redemptive. But you know what's not very redemptive? Our stupidity. 
You know, sometimes Christians suffer and probably deserve it well because of their own stupidity. Sometimes we suffer because we're just being a jerk. We're not being in any way gracious, insightful. We haven't exegeted our culture and understood how to engage tactfully and winsomely. Sometimes we just blurt things out or we thump our Bible and pound on it and tell people to turn or burn. How's that been working for you? We have to tell the truth, but we have to tell it in love. Sometimes we get persecuted just because we're just obtuse. Sometimes I say to Jesus, Lord, I know, I know they're my family, but do they have to keep embarrassing us so bad? And then, of course, he reminds me that I've embarrassed his body and him by some of the things I've done, not done, said. But we should make sure that we're not suffering for the wrong reasons. Suffering for the right reasons ends up being used by God to make us more like Jesus. Now, here's that difficult part, second part of the message this morning. God's word explains others' suffering. Not totally, not entirely. It doesn't tell us all of the final word about all of this, but it does give us a hint. And I can't go into as deeply as, as perhaps could be warranted, but I'm just going to try to say some important things and give you some perspective. Paul's description of the persecution suffered by the Thessalonians contains a warning to anyone, not just to the, to the ones in particular in view here, but to anyone who hears God's word but does not combine it with faith. It's a warning to the Jews of his day and to anyone in any age that does hears the word but then rejects it and turns away from the truth of the gospel. Look more, once more, at verses 15 and 16. From the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but God's wrath has come upon them at last. See, this kind of suffering, present and in the future, in eternity, is condemnation. It is not redemptive. It doesn't serve a, a good purpose. It is only for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, who know his son, that all things work together for good. But Paul says there will be some that it will not. The apostle didn't mince words. When it came to describing the Jewish nation and particularly its leadership, its religious leadership, he didn't mince words in describing the role they played in the death of Jesus, the death of the ancient prophets of God, as well as the present ongoing persecution of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ as he was trying to get a foothold in the Hellenistic world. And in Palestine, Paul's words, however, were in sync, not only, wasn't just something Paul said, they were in sync and meshed up right up with what Jesus said 
in number of places. But one of those places is Matthew 23, 29 through 32. He said, woe to you scribes, hypocrites, for you build tombs of the prophets and you decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. They said, we wouldn't have killed them if we had been there. Jesus said, liar. He said, thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. He says, you've been, you've been making installment payments on persecuting the cause of God to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth, to not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles, and you failed. And you turned away, and you rejected what he sent Paul's words in verse 16 that we read, that I read to you, verses 15 and 16, and particularly verse 16, have caused a lot of consternation and concern over what could be seen and sometimes has been called by many anti-Semitic bigotry. Certainly in our culture today, there were people that read that and would say, huh, that's, that's bigotry of the highest order. That's anti-Semitic. Now, listen, it's very important to affirm here. Something to affirm before I go on to saying what Paul is really getting at, what the real point is. It is important to affirm the utter tragedy of the World War II Holocaust or any Holocaust, any kind of racially motivated discrimination. We must decry that. And it's even made more tragic as the Holocaust was by those who ripped verses out of context, not really saying what the Bible actually says, but ripped them out of context and tried to justify mass genocide of the Jewish people. That is an atrocity and it deserves condemnation in any and every generation. The Bible does not support man taking that kind of action against man. But, that being said, Paul is not arguing here against a race of people because of their race. It's very important you understand that. He is not arguing, he's not being anti-Semitic. He's not arguing against a race of people because of their race. There's plenty of that. Hatred in the world. But that's not what Paul is doing. He expressed, his expressed sentiments could rightly be called anti-Judaism, but not anti-Semitism. Judaism, there was a group in the New Testament called Judaizers. And what were they trying to do? They were trying to take Christianity and merge it with Judaism and try to create a hybrid, but did not see the necessity of Christ and Christ alone as the only way to be made right with God. That was a dangerous truth or dangerous error that was being promulgated by the Judaizers. Paul here is making a very important distinction. Anti-Judaism, that is a theological conviction that Paul held. And that the Bible teaches. 
But the other anti-Semitism, racially motivated, that is a racial prejudice. And that should not ever be true of us. And if it is, we need to repent of it. But you see the difference. He's not making a thing based on race. He is talking about a theological conviction. And what is that theological conviction? It is that there is only one way to be made right with God. Not through the keeping of the law, which was essentially what Judaism was proclaiming. Rather, it is only in Christ and in Christ alone. Neither Paul nor Jesus were anti-Semitic because they were both ethnic Jews. How can they be anti-Semitic? But they were anti-sin and pro-gospel. That's what they were. When sin was revealed, when someone was putting up another way to get to God and become right with him other than Jesus Christ, Paul says, anathema, a curse on you. You see, the denial of Jesus as the Messiah, that's what leads to condemnation. Those who turn away from Jesus turn right into the path of God's oncoming judgment. You know, I used to play a lot of card games in school, uh, probably when I should have been studying, but, uh, you know, playing all these kind of games where you take cards and, you, you know, you try to do card tricks. Well, one of the easiest and, and cheesiest ones, not going to get anybody very, you know, the smart. But if, if you got somebody really kind of a, a you know, a, a person that hadn't been around very much and seen, you know, you pull out all the cards and you get, you know, whatever. And you, you can pull anything in the hand, uh, put any, and spread it out there. And, of course, you've got all the cards facing up, but you've got one, you know, or, or facing down. And, um, and, and so you, 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 there are ways, if you know the right right ways to do it you can make someone you can say pick a card any card any card will do because you know that ultimately what you're going to do is going to completely bypass that question that's an irrelevant question you're going you're going to show the trick by something else that has nothing to do so you let them think they have choice of anything and that's what people today want in every culture today in our religious pluralistic world. They just want to say, hey, pick a card. Any card will do. Jesus is one. He's a cool one. But anyone will do. No, they won't. Acts 4.12 says this. And there is salvation in no one else. And there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's not my exclusivity. That's the words of the Apostle Peter. Led to say that by the Holy Spirit. The truth. And Jesus himself said it. when He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except in me. See, the problem was here is the Jews were not only not believing, they were hindering the gospel from going to the Gentiles. And that can lead to no place good in time or in eternity. There is no doubt that the Jews were behind the death of Christ. But listen, listen. Paul's strong words must be viewed in the larger context of Romans 9, 10, and 11. 
Yes, Paul is condemning what they did. He's saying, you're culpable. You're wrong. This is a horrible, egregious thing you've done and are doing. But he says, in Romans 9, 10, 11, it tells us about a future plan that God has. That one day that hardness that's, that's overcome, that people, one day that's going to be changed. And there's going to be a revival, a renewal, and there are going to be some that will return and come to the Lord. It's a beautiful picture that's painted in Romans 9. And to look at the, how pastorally Paul, if you read there, Romans 9 and 11 has got some tough stuff in it, a lot of tough sledding. But, And he says some things. On the one hand, Paul knows that their judgment is just. And yet, in those verses in Romans chapter 9, on the other hand, Paul is longing for their salvation. He's longing for the salvation of the people that he said deserve condemnation. But he wants to see them saved. How can that be? Listen. Romans 9, 32, 10 through 11. Talking about the Jews, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stumbling and a rock of offense, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So, yes, they've stumbled over him, but they said, He says, but there's another option. What if they believe in him? They'll not be put to shame. They'll not be condemned if they put their faith in him. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that he may be saved. Paul's not sitting there saying, well, you guys are getting exactly what you deserve. Well, you want to get exactly what you deserve? Do I want to get exactly what I deserve? No. How can you be that heartless? How can God's people ever view those outside of Christ that way. And also in Romans 9, 1 through 3, listen to this. Listen to this heart of the, the evangelist, the apostle Paul, the missionary heart. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brother's my kinsman according to the flesh. Who is he talking about? The Jewish people. His ethnic people. He said if I could give up. I would suffer their condemnation. If they could be saved. That's how much he loved the lost. Do we think of the lost like that? Or are we self-righteous? And snooty. And uppity. In the way we see our culture and its lostness, floundering, struggling. Do we speak as dying men and women to dying men? See, that's what Paul did. And Paul himself, he called himself what? The chief of sinners. And he said that he was unworthy to be an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. Paul's not sitting there pointing finger. He's saying, I was right there until Jesus showed up. Until I saw him, the one whom to know is life eternal. Of all people, Paul saw his suffering through his Savior, Jesus Christ, And when he suffered, it was not because he knew it was not because God was angry at him anymore. 
He knew that that had been taken care of. It had been nailed to the cross. And as the hymn said, I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Paul, when he suffered, he never misinterpreted that as God is upset with me. God is disappointed with me. God is angry with me. He knew that had been dealt with by Christ. Is that the case with you and me? Christian, if you're still living, viewing your suffering as God's judgment and as God's displeasure and disappointment in you, you're not living by faith in his promise. What promise you say? Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. It's all gone. It's all been burned up and consumed on the altar of God's righteous judgment and justice and meted out on his only beloved son who loved us and gave himself for us. And now we are called to follow him, to suffer with him, and to proclaim the good news of the escape from condemnation to anyone who will hear Anywhere, anytime, any place. Do you understand that, my friends? Let's pray. Amen. Father, Lord, we don't like suffering. And Father, help us not to ever like the suffering of the lost, of those that are blind and cannot see. Lord, only you can open eyes and ears, and yet you've told us your word is powerful and it accomplished where unto you you send it, the thing that you intend. But, Father, let it be for salvation. Let it be for nations even now and still in darkness and blindness. Let it be. Send them the light. Send them the word, Lord, and let them hear the voice of Jesus in your word. Let it transform them as it did the Thessalonians. Let it transform us as it did the Thessalonians. Lord, help us to gain and keep our suffering in perspective. Help us when we go through it, Lord. You know it will be hard. It will not be a cross we want to carry or bear. But, Father, when we do, may we do so with faith and faithfulness, looking ultimately knowing that you are not displeased with us in Jesus but you are just conforming us more into his image. Your will be done, Father. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.